So for this week, we are taking a break from the book of Luke. We're going to return to it next week and we'll be looking at the rich man and Lazarus and the context is about finances, living for finances, and we'll go all into that next week. But over the next year, we're going to be covering the end of the book of Luke. We're going to look at the passion, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the trials of Jesus. I really love that we're at this place. I believe it is such a good thing for us to be studying that. But I thought for today, being the first weekend of the year, that we would talk about what it means to be a successful Christian. So the title of our message is Five uh, uh, Habits, let me say that without stuttering, Five Habits of the Successful Christian. And I need to give a definition for successful Christian because I think that we could easily misunderstand that. What I don't mean is someone who is successful in a worldly standard who also happens to be a Christian. There's a lot of that that goes on. But what I'm talking about is being successful as God defines Christians. That's what we're talking about. We know that that's where the greatest riches lie. And we're not talking about physical riches, right? We're talking about riches in general. We know that that is where we will be used by him and where our life will really matter. And so I want to talk about five habits of the successful Christian today. And we start with the first. Let me give them to you in case you're going to write them down. And then you can refer back to them as I make my way through. Number one, the successful Christian keeps short accounts with God. He doesn't let a long time go by before he makes things right. Keeps short accounts with God. Number two, keeps things right with the people that are around him. Number three, lives a life of repentance. We're going to talk about the misunderstanding of repentance that, that, we, that many people have and what real repentance is. Number four, applies God's word well, which if you hear what God says, and you do it, what is that called? Faith. When, you, when, when God speaks to you, you do what he says, that's what faith is. And the fifth and final thing we're going to talk about is that the, the successful Christian makes love a priority. God says, above all things, I would that you would have a fervent love for one another. And so that's above all. That's the number one thing. We are supposed to have that fervent love for one another. So let's go back to the first one. Love keeps, excuse me, love keeps short accounts. Uh, the, uh, the successful Christian keeps short accounts with God. I, I, in 1 John chapter 1, I don't know if I had you guys open up your Bible there, but in 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 and 9, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, you, I trust, are being sanctified by God. That means that God's at work causing you to become more holy. It's been said that a Christian taking things out of their lives that are ungodly is like an onion that has layers. And you gotta, or a parfait, but an onion that has layers and that has to be taken off. And it's funny because we generally think of the, the, the top couple of layers for sin and we don't think of other things, but it really is true that hey, all of a sudden sin can prop up in our lives in unexpected ways. The Bible says, if a man doesn't sin in the things that he says, he is a perfect man. Are, is anybody in here perfect? I'm just wondering. 
Because if you are, then I'll step aside, you come up and teach. Because it's far better for you two than me. Sometimes I'll say things and immediately identify them as pride. And the Bible says we're going to be judged by what we say. And sometimes I'll say something and I'll immediately try to reword it because I realize how bad it sounded. Or I'll even just point it out. That didn't sound good. That's not what I meant. But what is in our heart will eventually come out. And so we need to make things right. We need to make sure that we are being sanctified because if you say, well, I don't have any sin. I don't need to make things right between me and God. It said in John 1, 8, you're deceiving yourself. Sin is deceptive and you are deceiving yourself. And so it goes on to say, and I love that 1, 9 is right after 1, 8, not because that, that's the way it always is, I know, but because of what it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God says, even though you have sin in your life. And if you think you don't, you're deceiving yourself. If you confess it, then I'm faithful to forgive it. You can keep those short accounts. We're told in the Lord's Prayer, part of it is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the Lord's Prayer, right before it, it says, when you pray, don't pray with repetitive words thinking you're heard for your many prayers. So God didn't give us the Lord's Prayer for us just to, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and say it whatever, you know, as fast as we can. He gave it to us as a pattern for, for prayer. A lot of people will say, I don't know what to pray for. Well, pray the Lord's Prayer, but pray it like you mean it. Our Father in heaven. You have a dad who's in heaven who loves you and cares about you. My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your, you really mean it as you pray it. And one of the things that we're, and it's a daily prayer because it says, give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't say give us this month our monthly bread or give us this year our yearly bread, but give us this day our daily bread. And so he's, and then we're told to pray for forgiveness and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That daily kind of experience that God wants for us. I think that Jesus washing Peter's feet is also an example of this. They were clean, but they walked through dusty streets and their feet were dirty. And on the night that Jesus was arrested, he got up and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he began to go around with the wash basin, wash basin and wash the disciples' feet. And when he got to Peter, Peter said, you will not wash my feet, Lord. <laughs> and and Jesus said, I have to. Otherwise, you can have no part in me. Now, he didn't mean that Peter wasn't going to be saved if he didn't wash his feet. What he meant was, is that when we have unconfessed and unrepented sin in our lives, that it breaks the fellowship with God. It's one of the reasons that when I pray, one of the first things that I do is ask him to forgive me. Do you know that the Bible even says that the psalmist prayed this, Lord, reveal to me my hidden faults that have dominion over me. The psalmist knew that they had faults they didn't even know about. And so praying, Lord, forgive me, is a good thing because we don't want that fellowship with God to be broken. We want to have it right with him. And maybe if there's some of you guys here today and you've got unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life, it's a good thing to start the new year by confessing that to him, getting things right with him. So Peter being Peter said, when Peter said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter said, well, then my head and my hands. And Jesus said, I don't have to wash your head and your hands because you're already clean. Where you was already saved. He said, but not all of you, because he was talking about Judas. 
and then he washed the feet of Peter. David, it's interesting, David, of course, you know, was called when he was a, a young, just a boy, really, just a teenager. And he was faithful to God for many years, but in his late 50s, he walked out onto his porch and saw Bathsheba taking a bath. I don't know if the name's connected for any reason. Bathsheba taking a bath. David, the king of, kings of Israel were not supposed to accumulate wives. That was what kings did in their day. They had harems. The kings of Israel were to be different. But David already had at least 14 wives. We think maybe as many as 18. And so David could have called any one of his wives. But instead he had an affair with Bathsheba. And when she became pregnant, tried to get Uriah, her husband, to come back and sleep with her so he could cover his sin. But Uriah said, I won't do it. My, the, my, my, the soldiers I'm fighting with are out in battle. I'm not going to go home and, and sleep with my wife. And so he sent him back out in the battlefield and had him killed. When Nathan the prophet showed up, Nathan revealed to him his sin. And then Nathan said to David, you will not die. God commuted his sentence. When you kill someone in the law, you were supposed to die, but God commuted the sentence of David and then God restored him. When, and, and you can read his Psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. If you want to know when you do something severe, what are the right ways to repent? Psalm 51 is the, the Psalm for that. But I want to read you Psalm 32. This is another Psalm of David. And he's talking specifically about the year or so that went by when he rescued, it looked like he rescued Bathsheba and her son and a year had gone by, he looked like the hero when he was the villain the whole time. And this is what he says happened inside of him when he kept silent about his sin. He didn't deal with it. He just acted like it wasn't there. Here's what David says. Blessed is the man, this is Psalm 32, two, and two through four. Blessed is the man who the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. And whenever you see that word Selah, it means stop and think about it. David had a year where he hadn't kept short, things, uh, uh, short accounts with God. And for a year, his vitality was dried up and he had been separated from the fellowship of God for that amount of time. So the successful Christian, and to have a successful year as a Christian, then we need to keep short accounts with God, which means if you have unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life, then you take care of it now. We are going to a God who's promised us. Confess it, and I will forgive you. And don't think that, that there's no one who doesn't have sin. And if you think you don't, then you are deceiving yourself. The second thing that a successful Christian does is he keeps things right with the people around him. This is a really important point because the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 18, it, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. This means as Christians, we're supposed to make an effort to live at peace with people as much as we can, as it depends on you. The text knows that there are going to be people that we can't make peace with for whatever reason, but you try. And there comes a point where you go, I can't do anything else. I have a, I have a guy that is upset with me. I saw him at a restaurant not long ago. And when I saw him, I was excited to see him. And I said, hey, how are you? And he said, I'm all right. 
And I've talked to him before. I've said, what, I know I offended you because all of a sudden something changed in our relationship. And I said, I know I've offended you. What did I do? What, what, how did I offend you? He said, you didn't. And I know there's something, but he won't say it. And I finally came to the point where I said, you know what? I'm, he knows there's an open door and Lord, may you work it out. But I have to let it go. I have to be at peace as much as it concerns me. I'm at peace with him. He's just not at peace with me. We're supposed to live peaceably with all people. The Bible teaches us that there's this law of sowing and reaping, which is a biblical law. That is the way you treat people is the way you're going to be treated by God. The things you sow are the things you're going to receive. This is not karma, as some people will say. It is the law of sowing and reaping. God says the mercy you give is the mercy you're going to receive. Since I need mercy, I want to be the most merciful guy out there. And I have a hunch, it's just a hunch, mind you, that you need mercy too. But I think my hunch is pretty good. The Bible says the way you judge people is the way you are going to be judged. And if you forgive people, you will be forgiven. But if you don't forgive people, then you will not be forgiven. So there's this law of sowing and reaping that is connected to the way that we are treated by God. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for what manner, uh, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Don't be deceived. God isn't going to be mocked. We are to treat people the way we want to be treated. This is a really good way. And Jesus gave us this. It's the golden rule, right? Do unto others. This is Matthew 7, 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This was already around by the time Jesus said it, but it was, it was in the negative. It, the, 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 before Jesus came, it was don't do unto others the way you don't want people to do to you. But Jesus put it in the positive. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Now, it may be really easy for us to be at peace with the stranger, but people that are closest to us is what really matters. The people you live with, your husband, your wife, your mother-in-law, your, your, your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law. This is where the rubber meets the road and the way that we're supposed to live. And I have a passage out of 1 Peter 3, 7 to husbands who are not treating their wives properly. And God has a warning for them. And I, we, are, we are a complementarian church as opposed to an egalitarian church. Complementarian meaning that we believe that the Bible teaches that there are roles between men and women. They are equal. In fact, we know women are smarter than men. But there are roles that men have in the church and roles that women have and roles men have in the family and roles that women have in the family. And the Bible teaches this. An egalitarian believes that men and women are equal and there's no difference in the roles. And they think the roles in the scriptures were cultural. Right? That's how they come to their egalitarian position. There is an extreme complementarian view, which is wrong and sinful, where it ends up being abusive towards the woman. And we'll talk about egalitarianism and complementarianism at some point and we'll lay out when it becomes abusive during, during those. But listen to what it's saying to husbands here in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, 
Likewise, dwell with them with understanding. It's talking about your wives. Dwell with your wives with understanding. And, that, and that's a good thing for all of us. We want peace in our homes. Dwell with them with understanding. Then it says, give honor to the wife. The, the, the role of the husband is harder than the role of the woman. It's harder when you preach on the roles out of Ephesians to talk about the woman because the Bible says, women be submissive to your own husbands. That's hard. You end up getting glares from people while you're teaching. That's no fun. But to the husband, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and died for her. So you are supposed to love your wife the way that Christ loves the church. And I believe if the husband will do his role, giving honor to his wife and dying for her, that marriages will be strong, that that's where the power lies in it. I'm not saying that women can't be out of line in marriage. I'm simply saying that I believe for the most part, if a man does his role, that things will fall into place. So he says, likewise, dwell with them with understanding. Give her honor to your wife as the weaker vessel. It's not saying weaker mentally. It's not saying weaker in any other way. But we all know that the, the woman is the weaker vessel physically. Now, I realize there are the exceptions that prove the rule that when there's a bump in a night, there may be a couple here that the husband says, honey, go check that out. And that she says, you just stay right there. I'll go check it out. <laughs> there are exceptions, but we know for 99.9% .9 of couples, the husband is stronger. And the husband takes care of the wife and is there to provide a protection for her. When, when, when we do weddings, we talk about the rib and the rib being under the arm of protection for the husband. The husband is there to protect his wife doesn't want to do anything to harm her. And so he says here, um, honor her as the weaker vessel. By the way, that weaker is also got the term, is, is connected to valuable. Your wife is valuable to you. Why, would you. why would you not protect the valuable vessel in your life, the one God's given you to help you? Why would you do anything that's harmful to her? And so then he says this, that your prayers may not be hindered. When you are mistreating your wife, when you're mistreating your son-in-law, your mother-in-law, your employees, your employer, your prayers are hindered because you're running around as a tyrant, mistreating people, maybe even abusing people, and then saying, oh God, I ask you. And God's like, eh, go make that right and then come back. Make those things right and then come back to me. And there are passages that we could go to with that. And so it's important for us as successful Christians to be at peace with the people around us. And this might be, mean a radical change for some of you. Some of you guys may be, I just speak my mind. I tell people what I think and people don't like me very much. Well, then stop it. Don't just speak your mind. Walk in love. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. The third thing that a successful Christian does is he walks in repentance. And repentance is one of those things that is just greatly misunderstood today. We feel like if I do something and I have regret and I cry and I feel bad, that that is repentance. But the Bible says that Esau sought repentance with tears but was unable to find it. Regret is not repentance. Being contrite about your sin is not repentance. 
Having a broken and a contrite spirit is good because God, God wants that in us, but that's not repentance. You can have all of those things, but if you continue doing the things that, you've, that, you, that, that caused you to weep and cry and feel the regret, then you haven't repented. When me and my late wife, Lisa, had first been married, we got married when we were really young. She was still 19 years old and I was 21 years old when we got married. And within the first couple of months, we had a fight and it was a screamer. I mean, it was a fight. And in the middle of this fight, there's a lamp on, a, on an end table and I got so angry, I, I slung the lamp off the end table. And my dad had a, had a really strong temper. My dad really was an abuser to us kids. And my dad would slam things down and, and would, would knock things off. So I was just being like my father. And immediately I felt a great shame. And, and really, when you do that, when you knock something off, when you slap your hands, when you slap a wall, when you punch a wall, you're, as, as a, you're trying to control the situation. That's what you're doing. That's the beginning of abusive behavior. Because pretty soon that won't control the situation. You've got to go further to be able to do it. But I slung it off the table and it broke and I just felt so ashamed. And I, and I said to her, I'm sorry. I will never do it again. And by the grace of God, I didn't. It wasn't the feeling of shame that was repentance. It wasn't even me saying I'm sorry that was repentance. It was the fact that God gave me the ability to walk away from that temper that I, I no longer did it, that I was no longer going to do that in the marriage. That's repentance. Repentance is when you go, when you are convinced that something is wrong, and this is what God does to Christians, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So you are convinced that something you're doing is wrong, and so you change it. That's real repentance. Tears may come, regret may come, shame may come. Those are not repentance. Repentance is when you turn. And though that regret, that shame may cause you to go, I don't want this, but the repentance is when you turn away from it. An example of this that I thought of because I just watched The Christmas Carol this year. We wanted to watch a Christmas movie. So we watched The Christmas Car uh, Carol. I think Patrick Stewart is the one who played, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge in it. And when the, the movie starts, he's, a, he's just a creep, right? He's just a jerk. He's everything we're talking about not being, he's being. And then the spirit of Christmas past, present, and future visit him. And by the time he gets to the Christmas uh, future, he says to the spirit, are these things that are and can't be changed? Or are these things that can be changed? Those were the seeds of repentance in Ebenezer. So when he wakes up on Christmas morning, he opens the window and there's a kid walking by. He says, what day is it? He says, it's Christmas day. And he's like, the spirits all did it in one night. And he's a different person. He's different to his employee. He's different to his nephew. He's different to little Tim. He's different to all of them. That's repentance. He didn't have to wake up and fall down on his face on the edge of the bed and cry and say, oh, I'm such a horrible, awful person. I'm so bad. He needed to change. That's what repentance is. It's when you say, I am going to change. That's when you turn and you pivot. Not a lot of people think, well, I saw him in my office and he was repentant. He was crying. He was full of repentance. But then he left and did the same thing he was doing before. 
That wasn't repentance at all. Repentance is when you make the change. And a successful Christian knows that and knows when they are convicted by God, I need to make that change. I need to, I need to change this. And maybe God's been speaking to something about something to you. And sometimes it takes a while to change, right? Sometimes you start going down the road and you blow it and you go down the road, and you blow it. Just keep it up. Repentance will be when you do it. So you're heading down the right road, even if you're struggling while you're heading down that road. Because we are dealing with behavior issues, because we're dealing with addiction issues, all of those things could come into play. But repentance is still when you turn. The fourth thing that a, a successful Christian does is that he applies God's word well. He's good at applying God's word. Now, when you read something that's in the Bible that tells you what you're supposed to do, and, and then you, you do it, what is that called? Faith. That's faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. So when you hear God, read God's word, and if you don't do it, then that's a lack of faith and you're not pleasing God. But when you read what he wants from you and you do it, then you're pleasing God. And the Bible tells us, um, in spite, and, and in spite of not, well, I'm gonna, let me take back the Bible tells us. In spite of doubts, you can still have faith. And the example that I use for this often is in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says that by faith, the children of Israel kept the Passover. And I imagine in my mind, two people keeping the Passover. The first one says, I don't understand this. You want me to bring a lamb into my house for, I think it was a week or maybe two. Then you want me to kill it, eat it, and smear the blood on the doorpost of my house? How gory to take the blood and smear it on my home. And then you tell me the death angel's gonna pass by and my firstborn's going to live. I don't believe it. But I do kinda like my firstborn. <laughs> so, I guess I'm gonna do it. And so he kills the animal reluctantly. He has the meal with his family. He smears the blood on, around the door of his house reluctantly. He's got a neighbor. His neighbor is different than him. His neighbor hears what the Passover is and says, bring that lamb here. Let's, let, let's slaughter it and let's eat it and let's take the blood and smear it on the doorpost lest my firstborn die when the death angel passes over. He has great confidence. He is not questioning it at all. He doesn't have any any kind of animosity towards God like his neighbor does who wonders why in the world God would make him smear blood on his house. Instead, he does it. Which one of these two men had faith? Which one of these two men had the death angel pass over? Both of them. Trick question, right? Both of them. Because it doesn't matter if you're doubting. It doesn't matter if you're reluctant. What matters is if you do it. When you do it, that's faith even if there's doubt, even if there's reluctance. That's what faith is. And the successful Christian is, is one that applies God's word well, that lives by faith. Listen to what the Bible says about Scripture's role in our life. This is the role Scripture plays in Christian, a Christian's life. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, means it's God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, 
for instruction in righteousness that the man of God, I'll throw in the woman of God as well, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Sola Scriptura. The entire Word of God is God-breathed. And it's profitable for me that I would be thoroughly equipped. There's nothing that I need for life and godliness that comes, that's different than what comes in the Word of God. It is all God's authority and the successful Christian is able to apply it well. I have this parable from Mark 9, 22 through 24. And a father asks his sons to go out and work in the vineyard. Listen to what it says. This is a parable of Jesus. And after he has thrown um, him both... Where am I at? Is that what I want? Where am I at? All right. Okay, here we go. I'm there. I'm okay. <laughs> Don't panic. Uh, and it happened as he spoke to them a certain, well, that's not what I want. That I'm not okay. <laughs> all right, I know what, uh, um, all right, I know, uh, okay, here we go. Um, I'm really not okay. I just look okay. <laughs> so we're talking about applying God's word well, and we're talking about having doubts. There was a father whose son was demon-possessed, and he asked Jesus for help. Listen to what he says. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But then he says this to Jesus. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now that's kind of a doubtful question. Jesus didn't have this often. People would come to Jesus and say, help my son, help my daughter. But this man said, if you can, then help my son. Wasn't sure Jesus could help him. So Jesus responds and said to him, um, Immediately, excuse me, <laughs> but, uh, but if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. The, and, and Jesus heals his child. Again, it's faith, even though there's some unbelief that is there. My point is, is that faith is a decision that you make. You make that decision, despite that there may be doubts, you make the decision to live for Jesus. That's when you walk by faith. It is not confidence. People have faith mixed up with confidence. And so people will say to me, I just don't have faith. No, you don't have confidence. You can have faith. You, you lack confidence. But when you say, I am going to believe God, that is faith and God will begin to move in your life based upon that. So Jesus said that the person that keeps the word of God is more blessed than Mary, his mother. Listen to what Jesus is teaching. And a woman cries out from the crowd. And uh, it says, and it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nurse you. And he said more than that. He agrees. Yes, Mary was blessed. Gabriel said, blessed are you among women. Yes, she's blessed. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. These are the words of Jesus. You are more blessed than Mary if you hear God's word and keep it. You got the first part down, right? You're here, you're hearing God's word. Now you can keep it 
and find a great blessing that Jesus told us would be in our lives. Now, the last thing that a successful Christian does is that he makes love a priority. And, and you knew sooner or later we would get to this. We are told that without love, everything that we do is empty. First Corinthians chapter 13, we're told that if we can speak in every language of the world, but we don't have love, we're just making noise. We're banging symbols together. We're told that if we have all knowledge and we understand all mysteries, you literally know it all. You know everything. It means nothing if you don't have love. And then we're told if you give your body to be burned as a sacrifice, but you don't have love, it profits you nothing. So the, the motive of love means everything. In fact, when sometimes people will come up to me after a service and want some advice and they'll tell me about some situation where things are just tied up in a knot. They're just a mess. This happened and this happened and this happened. And then I did this and then I did that and then they did this and they did that. There's all this history that is there. And then they say to me, what should I do? And I go, I don't know what you should do. We'd have to sit down for a lot longer, but I'll say, but here's what I know. You can never make a mistake by walking in love. You can never make a mistake by asking, what does love tell me to do? No matter how complicated the situation is, wherever it's at right now, what does love tell you to do? And if you can do that, now it's not always the easiest thing to decipher or discern, but at least it's a good step when things are tied up in a knot and you don't know where to go. You feel polarized because of that. What does love tell you to do? In 1 John 4, 15 and 16, it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So God is love. We know that love is the greatest motive we can have. And when I, when I ask, what does love tell me to do in this situation? It can most often give you what you need to be able to make a good decision. What does love tell you to do? And the motive, the greatest motive that we can have for anything is love. Without it, everything we do is nothing. But listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4 eight, And above all things, have a fervent love for one another. Th this verse really interests me because there's a lot of things God tells us to do. But above all things, he says, this is the highest priority in our lives. Above all things, have a fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Even if there's mistakes, even if there's problems, if you love one another, love is able to cover a multitude of sins. Now, I have three passages in closing. And these are, are passages kind of to help us with this year. That if we can really bring these into our lives this year, it will really help us to have this success as a Christian. Number one is Galatians 5.16, which says, Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You want to do what God wants you to do this year? Then walk in the Spirit. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, Jesus said, the wind blows and you don't know where it came from. You don't know where it went, but you feel it. So it is with the Holy Spirit. We don't know where the Holy Spirit's going and where it's come from, but he works in our lives and he reveals to us what he wants from us. And he begins to direct us and guide us. 
And you might not, you may not be the best person walking in the Spirit tomorrow, but I know that you can be better tomorrow than you are today and better the next day than you are today. You can say, I want to walk in the Spirit. And if you would get up, or even the rest of today, just say, Lord, help me to walk in the Spirit today because I know I won't fulfill the deeds of the flesh. The second is Psalms 37, 4, which says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I love that verse because what are you delighting in? If you're delighting in the things of the world, then you're probably going to be desiring the things of the world. The law of sowing and reaping again. But if you delight yourself in God, if you say, I'm going to delight myself in God tomorrow, I'm going to delight myself in God today, then your desires are going to change. That's the beauty of this. God will give you what you desire. You say, well, I desire something simple. Does it mean that God's going to give me that? No. It means God's going to change your desires. Now, when you struggle, you have a, a temptation and you, and you don't do it, that's a victory. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way we are tempted yet without sin, which means temptation is a sin. So when you have a temptation and that temptation is even strong and you don't do it, that's a victory. That's good. But how much better to have your desires changed? And here I'm speaking from my own personal life. I, I would rather have my desires changed so my desires are godly than to have the temptation and be victorious. Now, trust, I, I want to be victorious. When I am tempted, I want to be victorious over it but I want my desires to be godly. I'll give you another verse that says the same thing. This one's in John 15, 7. If you abide in me, Jesus said, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. Same kind of thing. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Abide in me and let my words abide in you and you will ask what you desire and it will be given. Your desires again are going to be godly. And the real reality is that both of these are going to come into play this year. You're going to be tempted. Maybe you'll make a mistake or maybe you'll sin when you are tempted. Maybe you'll be victorious over it. And I hope that that happens more and more. But we can bypass all of that by delighting in God, abiding in Christ, having his word abide in us so that our desires will be changed. And this year will be radically different if we learn to live that way. Those are the, those are the steps for a successful Christian. Not a person who's successful that's a Christian, but successful as a Christian. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the time that we're able to spend looking at this broad spectrum of what your word says about the way that we as Christians live. And we pray now that you would help us to apply these things in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.